obviously there's a lot to discuss since we haven't uploaded in a while, but how better way to start Shoot Your Shot Season 3, Episode 4, than to talk about the longest tenured Raptor from the championship team finally gone away. So Pascal Siakam was traded earlier today to the Indiana Pacers for Bruce Brown, Jordan Nuwara, and a couple of first-round picks. Now, obviously, we are technically trading him for pennies on the dollar, given his value over the past couple of years. And he came out and actually said that he's not going to sign with whoever trades him, which tanked his value even further. So honestly, as a Raptors fan, I'm kind of surprised we still traded him as opposed to losing him for nothing, at least, which Masai learned the hard way for the true Raptors fans out there. We didn't get three first round picks for OG, but I'm not really complaining about the package we did get for OG because the new look Raptors are looking a lot better than we have before. And yeah, what do you think about the trade so far? Uh, Well, along with the fact that the Raptors got pennies on the dollar, it's not a great fit for Indiana either because Siakam really needs to have the ball to really get stuff done, um, which of course is going to take touches away from from Hallie, from Tyrese Halliburton. So I, I don't think schematically it's a great fit for Indiana. So I, I agree with you. I could see this being a situation where Siakam goes somewhere else. I mean, you've seen cases where you know, stars or, or former stars get traded from their teams, go somewhere, and, you know, there's, like, a contract buyout, such as uh, last year when Russ was traded from the Lakers. He was originally supposed to go to the Jazz, but the Jazz bought out his contract, and he ended up on the Clippers, which, you know, has obviously worked out quite well for them, um, or for both parties. Um, yeah, so, so it's a bit of an interesting trade overall, but we I could kind of tell that the Raptors were ready to go in full rebuild mode. Um, I'm sure as for you, it must be very emotional thinking about the fact that nobody on that championship team is there anymore. Um, Siakam was the last guy and I guess OG Anobi would have been the second to last. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's a new, it's a new era in Toronto. It's bittersweet. Like it's not a hard rebuild. It's very much so a soft one. Like we're already kind of, competing if you will um i feel like we kind of did the best we can with how long we waited especially with messiah's uh over tenured patience for this particular trade however i think that we still kind of capitalized where we needed to we got a point guard which wasn't malachi flynn thank god which is a lot better uh defensively so I think uh, Emmanuel quickly is a splendid team defender. He's not great individually, but he brings that hustle play on the defensive end that you'd like to see from a Raptors team that wants to compete down the road. And I think that everyone's essentially on the same timeline uh, outside of Bruce Brown. So I'm interested to see if we're going to keep him to make a championship push in a couple of years around, around Scotty Barnes or if we're actually going to flip Bruce Brown for a contender to get even more pieces and uh, accentuate the rebuild a little bit more. So I'm interested to see what we're going to do with the pieces that we keep getting back for these trades 
Um, I think we're going to keep RJ in quickly. And uh, I'm not sure if we want to renew Jakob Pertle because he's good, but we went on a little winning streak when he was injured as well. So obviously not much to talk about when it comes to the Raptors since uh, they're kind of in a soft rebuild like we've mentioned. However, you can't really deny that Emmanuel Cookley and RJ Barrett are playing a lot better in Raptors uniforms than they did for the New York Knicks. It worked out as a win-win for both teams. And just to end off, um, I actually disagree with you when it comes to Siakam being a good fit on the Pacers because he can play off ball. And I think that uh, Tyrese Halliburton is going to unlock true potentials from Siakam that weren't present in a Raptors uniform because of him being the focal point of our offense as compared to him having that second or third option again, just like he did on our 2019 uh, championship team. I think he thrives a lot better in that role. I think it's better suited for him, for his skill set, especially now that he's a lot more polished compared to when he was back then. In 2019, he was still winning things like um, ra ra uh, the Most Improved Player Award, the championship, obviously. But then 2020, 2021, he turned himself into an all-NBA caliber player. Even though he wasn't my favorite Raptor, I liked OG a lot more because of his defensive intensity. I think Siakam especially uh, settled a lot for three-pointers instead of like just driving to the rim and going to his patented uh, spin jumper and his uh, spin hook layup. However, at the end of the day, you can't really complain because he was a good star. Specifically, the stats show that this season, for the last, I think, 17 to 19 games, he's been shooting over 45% from three compared to how he started off in the 20s. So you can't really like complain about him not being a good fit in Indiana because I think he's going to highlight his uh, strengths a lot more around that ball movement heavy team as compared to a lot more isolated centric offenses we ran in Toronto. No, that makes sense. And maybe that is kind of Siakam's thing as he needs, uh, you know, change of scenery, kind of getting more back to what he was doing two, three, not two, three years ago, like three, four years ago. Because um, again, like as you said, the Raptors are in a kind of a soft rebuild. Like they're not fully rebuilding, but it's clear that they're like turning the page in the 2019 championship team eras no more but you know the raptors can still do something this year i mean you know more recently they picked up a nice win over miami tonight so that's good uh confidence and momentum building for them against lowry yeah against the groat yeah it's kind of weird to see how when jimmy butler came back miami's not doing as well as when he was out yeah i I'll be honest, I haven't watched as much Heat basketball lately, but Miami's always interesting. I feel like this year, I feel like this year they're a little bit more balanced between offense and defense compared to last year, even though the record is roughly the same through about 40 games. Um and uh the, the rookie uh Yaquez is looking pretty good too. So he could really be a contributor on this year's team, maybe make up for the absence of uh like Gabe Vincent, Max Struess, kind of some of those role players. 
for sure um, so yeah um yeah just picking back off the siakam trade and the og trade hopefully quickly and rj continue to flourish more under the raptors limelight now that they have um a lot more of an extended role specifically quickly and hopefully he'll unlock his true potential just like i think siakam is gonna unlock uh, not his more potential just more of like the player he used to be in indy and uh Hopefully, um, I don't think that makes them a title contender, so to speak, but at least now they have that like final piece that they were looking for to kind of take them off the edge a little bit more defensively as well. I think he offers them a lot more defensive versatility compared to the team they used to be. But um, yeah, honestly, I don't think they're like too much into the title mix as a Clippers team would be, which is the kind of rant I wanted to start off this episode, but we got some breaking news. But yeah, so the Clippers are essentially leading the league in win percentage after the Harden trade. They've gone 12 and 2 in their last 14. They're shooting 51% from the field and 41% from three as a team. And I'm pretty sure that no other team in the entire NBA is shooting over 40% as a team. I think your Boston Celtics come in at a close second at around 39%. However, shooting that well as a team and having three perennial all-stars, never mind superstars on the same team, We've had this conversation offline, but I'm going to go ahead and say on the record, I think the Clippers are a far-fetched, or not a far-fetched, a far clear favorite title contender when it comes to the entire league, if, and that's a large if, if they remain fully healthy. If one piece falls, then this statement can be totally disregarded because then they'll be head-to-head in battles with other teams with two one-stars. However, as fully constructed and if fully healthy, I think that the Los Angeles Clippers will um, raise the Larry OB at the end of uh, the season. I would also maybe add one caveat to that, which is do the regular season Clippers show up in the playoffs? Because there, there are some times where I feel like, yeah, the Clippers have dealt with injuries quite a fair bit. Um you know, back in 2021, though, um, then they played the Phoenix Suns in the conference finals, which was their first appearance there in franchise history. You know, they're fairly healthy. I think Kawhi may have had, you know, minor ailments here and there, but they look pretty good as a team. Paul George played well. You know, Kawhi was more himself. Um, you know, it's it's a, just a question of can they kind of get over that final hump as a team? And, of course, since then they have added – Harden and Westbrook um it again it just comes down to whether those guys you know can come together in the postseason the way they have so far in the regular season and I would also you know build the case for the Clippers or in terms of what they've done the last was it 14 15 games um because they're 12 and 2 or 12 and 3 through the last 15 and I think that, that that number is slightly skewed because they they got blown out by the Celtics. But other than that <laughs> game, other than that game, which I I Kawhi didn't play that game too, you know, again, kind of built supporting your case that they, you know, really could be contending if they all stay healthy. Um, yeah, the Clippers, with the Thunder's win the other day, they're actually thirteen and two in their last. Uh, uh, thirteen and two, not twelve and three. Yeah, they did beat the Thunder, and the Thunder. 
are a really young team, but they're probably the second most balanced team in the league right now, besides yeah. the Celtics. They're legit you know, top, this season. Top five, top five in offensive and defensive rating, and I believe they have the second best net rating as well. Um, plus, they have wouldn't even call him a budding star, just flat out all star and SGA. You know, very complete team. Um, but yeah, no, they they beat them in what was a very competitive game, but that kind of shows you. That again, the Clippers, if healthy and if performing up to par with who they have, again, you kind of have your four all stars so Kawhi, Harden, PG, and, and Westbrook. You know, maybe his role is diminished from when he won MVP six years ago, but he can still ball. Um, and he's a lot better of a facilitator. Um, yeah, and then you also got good role players like Terrence Mann, who hasn't been shooting very well lately, I think, until. This past week or, or yeah, until for the new year. I mean, again, going back to that Celtics game, he was like 0 for 9 from 3 and like 0 for 12 from the field or 0 for 13 from the field. Uh, but he has really picked up his defensive intensity. So that could really help the Clippers too. Um, and again, like the Thunder, the Clippers are a very balanced team. They play both offense and defense at a high level so they can score. You know, in games like the Thunder, where both teams are are scoring a lot of baskets, but they can also defend. They can get the stops when they need to. Um, so yeah, I think the West will be a very interesting uh, matchup. Along with the Clippers, you know, you have teams like the Thunder. You know that, it, despite being a very young and inexperienced team, could really make a push. So we could see some new faces this year, Absolutely. Um, along with. Along with Denver, you know, we haven't mentioned Denver yet, but I think that goes without saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so um, like you said, the Clippers, the Thunder, uh, very legit forces in the Western Conference. Denver as well, obviously, the defending champions. Those hail the top three or top four in the um, Western standings alongside the Minnesota Timberwolves, which a lot of people fail to talk about. And a lot of people see them as a first to second round exit. Unfortunately, I will have to agree. I don't think Ant's there yet. And by Ant, I mean Anthony Edwards, obviously. I don't think he's had that experience to kind of take his team over the hump when it comes to a playoff setting. I think they're more of a regular season team, which is the opposite of what I think the Clippers are because of the stars having gone through so much, specifically Kawhi Leonard, two different finals MVPs for two different teams. I think he can just be that, um, not even X factor, just the factor that's going to take you over the hump when all of it is said and done in a playoff setting. And just to shift gears a little bit here real quick, uh, obviously the Lakers are the polar opposite of the Clippers. They are currently sitting in the 10th spot in the Western Conference, uh, under 500, um, right before the All-Star break last season, they were sitting at the exact same record. I think it was 19 and 21. And all hell and well, we were also at 19 and 21 before our latest win. I think we're going to go back to 500 as this current live game with the Mavs is almost over. We're leading by 20 points, so you can't really complain over there. However, um, LeBron James did sort of tackle Kyrie Irving, which uh, affected the game a lot mm -hmm. more. 
But uh, yeah, we're having to resort to LeBron James playing football on the basketball court to win games at this point because of our um, shaky starting lineups and the lack of continuity with the players that we've been having around our two all-stars and them being healthy for the first time. Now it's everyone else who's unhealthy, which has put Darvin Ham on the hot seat or shall I say lack of thereof, because honestly, personally, I think he should be um, kind of like just a little bit more, you know, like he should share some of the some of the blame that the team's facing. But a lot of people are kind of scapegoating him or lack thereof. Uh, they're kind of scapegoating the health reasons that the role players haven't been really healthy. And they're kind of just like safeguarding him from what should be a lot more scrutiny he's facing when it comes to him not being as continuous with the starting lineup and him just having very questionable insertions and deletions from those starting lineup and generally just to finish games. Like a lot of uh, fans are upset that Delo's not finishing games. A lot of people are upset that Austin Reeves was removed from the starting lineup to begin with. Um, when LeBron started at point guard, that was an excellent idea and fruition. However, it's confusing to see why he surrounded LeBron James with a bunch of non-shooters and Cam Reddish and Jared Vanderbilt with, when the Lakers are already a team that struggles to shoot the ball. So that's why I think he has had, uh, at best, some questionable decisions as a head coach. But I think a lot of people are giving him the benefit of the doubt because of last year's conference finals run and kind of overlooking the fact that we're halfway through the season and we've lost half our games. Yeah, I think it, it's funny you mentioned that the continuity and insertions and deletions, um, because ultimately when you make these lineups, you have to consider the weaknesses of different players, along with, of course, you know, what they are good at and how they mix with the other guys on the court. And I feel like the Lakers, yeah, yeah, I don't have any stat or data to back this up. I feel like the Lakers have way more like one way players on their team than just about any other squad in this league. And of course, if you make the lineups correctly, you know, that's good because the Lakers, in spite of their slump, you know, can still defend quite well. And of course they're led by AD who can, kind of go off have that like 40 point 10 or not not 10 rebound like 20 rebound type of night yeah. and then of course the king um who even at 40 is still balling out of his mind isn't that crazy still has a lot left in the tank um but the problem is ultimately basketball is a team sport and you need to have first of all some continuity and i i i think the lakers also get are struggling with the balance of like yeah, you can't be putting in non-shooters to finish games if your entire problem is you can't score and you can't shoot. Um, you know, it does definitely doesn't help that, you know, role players who are more shooters like Gabe Vincent have been hurt. I, I think he got surgery recently too, which might put yeah, him out longer. Out until after the All-Star break. So that that's not gonna that's not gonna help, but of course you know, even after the all-star break, there's still a lot of season left. And as you mentioned, the Lakers were hovering right around 500 at this point last year, um, but still made a run to the conference finals. Um, so I sometimes mention Miami too, even if their record or 
you know, stats aren't quite as good. It's like, you know, teams can heat up at different points in the season. Um, that being said, though, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, if you're the Lakers, if you're Darvin Ham, you should be, you should be sweating a little bit. That's, you know, they're, they're especially only winning two of your last 13, although, you know, maybe come three of their last 14 tonight because it looks like they're going to handle Dallas. That's tough. Yeah, it's a tough stat to throw out there for sure. I think it's also a little bit to do with the Lakers limelight. Not as much, obviously, but you have players like last season. We had Beasley traded from the Minnesota Timberwolves as part of that entire Russell Westbrook, D'Angelo Russell trade package. And the men's a perennial, like, very good 39-40% spot-up shooter. Like, he is a sniper. Man's had the lowest shooting percentage from three in his entire career on the Lakers. And he was only there for half a season. So what do the Bucks do? They go pick him up. Now he's leading the entire league. And at really high volume, Man's not taking like three, four shots a game. He's taking six to seven threes a game. And he's shooting them at a 48% clip. That is simply unprecedented in the NBA on that many shots per game. That's literally making half of your threes while putting up six to seven a game. He's averaging about three to four made threes per game. And that's as many as MVP season Steph Curry was putting up. However, um, he was making a little bit more because he was putting up like 12 a game. And about the same efficiency, well, not really. He was, like, kind of shooting 41 42%. But when you're taking 12 threes a game, that's still elite. But not to take away from the fact that making half of your threes is ludicrous because a 50% field goal percentage is considered elite in today's NBA. A lot of players like to take it up to 60 if they're bigs especially. However, if you're an all-star or a superstar of a player and you're shooting 45 to 50% from the field, that's considered elite to good. And you're taking this guy who's putting up six threes a game and he's making half of them. The analytics say that if you're making 40% of your threes, that's as good as making 50 to or sorry, 60% of your twos. So when you go out and you have a player that's making 50% of their threes at a really high clip, that's simply unprecedented. And I think that's the Lakers limelight kind of getting to players like that and taking them away from their element, kind of forcing them to play off the ball a little bit how they're not used to. Beasley used to be a starter for most of his career. That's what the Bucks did with him. They trusted him with that starting role. He's not the best defensively, but the Bucs are responsible for having the second best offensive rating in the entire NBA and the best offensive rating in the entire NBA in the fourth quarter specifically because of their firepower in their starting lineup with Beasley, Giannis, Dame Lillard, obviously. He had um, a very clutch bucket the other day, and it was his first Dame time bucket on the books. He won the game for them, so... Honestly, that's to say that I think a lot of um, players end up folding on the Lakers because the light bright, uh, the the light shines too bright. Yeah, again, like th there's definitely an element of like schemes and you know lineups that can help or hinder you. Um, you know, I I I again, like I didn't watch enough Beasley of Beasley when he was on the Lakers, but I also don't know like 
you know like what the breakdown is of his like contested versus open versus wide open threes were on the Lakers versus the Bucks. So I'm sure that's the other thing. Like it does again go back to like lineups and schemes of like, you know, are you getting guys in their sweet spots? Are you getting them open or even wide open looks? Um, and I feel like the Bucks do a much better job with that overall. Um, you know, again, you 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 alluded to the fact that they outlasted the Kings uh a few nights back, you know, Dame making one of his uh, vintage Dame time shots. Reminds me a lot of the 2019 uh, Western Conference semifinals, that last game, that game seven. Um, uh, of course, we'll, we'll, you know, the Kings definitely sold that game big time. Was <laughs> it, uh, De'Aaron Fox missed a couple of big free throws. They had a lot of turnovers at the end, too. Um, yeah, I think Sabonis had a couple of bad turnovers. Um, but ultimately, you know, the Bucks were able to outlast the the – uh, the Kings and you know Dame, you know guys bread, and that's why the the Bucks had the second best offense in the NBA. And it looks like if you watch them play, they're they're very they're a very smooth operation. Um, you know, obviously have Giannis who will always, you know, play like an MVP. Uh, you know, big big guy can defend and get to the hoop. Um, and then of course you have Beasley shooting out of his mind i will say that though uh bucks didn't really look like themselves tonight put no, an absolute clunker against against uh cleveland it's kind of weird though like some of the top teams in the it's league because just... Giannis was out but that's not yeah really... it doesn't like damian lillard having 17 points on god knows how many shots he took 20 shots and he has 17 points like look mother lord of inefficient yeah it's kind of i mean like like to be fair like you know a bunch of top teams they'll you know they'll have kind of i heard the term schedule loss thrown out there which is kind of to say like every team's just gonna put up a clunker and where where nothing goes right i mean you know the bucks blew out the celtics by 35 last week and the celtics had something similar you know they were like one for 17 on wide open threes like you know, you're, you're just never going to win a basketball game playing like that. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, the Bucks with their well-oiled offense, you know, are definitely a top contender in the East. I think the thing that might drag the Bucks down is their defense, particularly sure. their perimeter D, you know, really struggles. It's kind of weird. I, I see the Bucks and the Timberwolves as having opposite issues yeah. that could prevent them from winning their conferences which is uh, the wolves sometimes struggle to you know score i mean they got out the entire wolves team a couple weeks ago or last week it might have been got outscored by jason tatum in overtime mm-hmm. when the, the celtics played them um and meanwhile the bucks you know again the perimeter d can really be a struggle for them and it's great they beat they beat the kings but they had to score you know what was that? 143 points to get that win. Um, um, and I think that was yep, 143, 143 on the dot. 142. Yeah. So that's just it. Like you can be a team like the Nuggets where you don't have a top 10 defense in the league, but you have a good enough offense to carry you over. Um, 
yeah, I, I will say, I think I think that's where losing Drew Holiday definitely hurts the Bucks. Definitely yeah. have much worse perimeter D. He got flipped to go on the Boston Celtics, which have by far the best net rating in the entire league right now. And they're only trailing Milwaukee with 0.1 when it comes to their offensive rating. So you can argue that Milwaukee and Boston have the exact same offensive rating. However, the Bucks allow 116 points every 100 possessions, whereas the Boston Celtics only allow 110. That's six fewer points per 100 uh, possessions, which gives the Bucks um, a total of the ninth, only the ninth best net rating of 3.7 in the NBA, which is not that good. And then the Boston Celtics have a net rating of 10.0, which is actually insane. So you can tell that they do everything insanely well. Everyone on that team knows their role to a T, and everyone doesn't have a problem playing that role. They actually thrive within it, and they have all of the pieces and the makeup required for a championship squad. However, their name is the Boston Celtics, so they're going to end up beating themselves, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, one... One thing that I know you wanted to talk about, you know, mentioning that the Celtics are very front-loaded is who is kind of that guy on the team. Um, you know, and you can correct me if if my uh, summary of your, your thoughts and feelings are inaccurate, <laughs> but, you know, maybe you wanted to discuss whether Kristaps uh, Porzingis, a.k.a. Tingus Pingus, a.k.a. Porzingis, <laughs> whether he's kind of the go-to guy on that team or whether it's still the, the, I would say the Jays team, you know, yeah. really Tatum and Brown. Yeah. Um, so obviously a- like he, it's the Jays team, like at the end of the day, specifically Tatum, um, you can say that in their PR scores, like Tatum has a 27.5, which kind of like just overshadows both of them. Uh, I'm surprised to say that Kristaps has a higher, efficiency rating than Jalen Brown specifically with how well he's been playing recently Jalen Brown's been playing so well he's been kind of leading the team and scoring for I want to say like half of their last 10 games he's been playing really well specifically when he's their go-to guy and Jason Tatum's out he recently had his like 40 plus point performance which led they lost that game didn't they they did. It was that one with like the crazy ending and, and the calls yeah. that I won't get into, but yeah. let's just say it was the controversial ending. Against the Pacers, yeah. When exactly um, it was it was uh, Buddy second healed, of, uh, he fouled him hit, from behind and hit his head, but the refs just kinda glossed over it because he touched the ball too. Well they 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 now well they didn't gloss over it. They Well when they reviewed it, they, they did. reviewed the play, but not only did they not call it a foul, but they then gave the ball to Indiana. Um, and then, of course, on the other end, when uh, what was it, Benedict Maturin, uh was taking the game-winning shot, Kristaps uh, Porzingis was called for the foul. Um, yeah. If he hadn't been called for a foul, it would have gone overtime, but mm-hmm. he made two of the three free throws, which effectively ended the game. Um, but yeah, in that game, Brown had, I think, 42 points. And uh, even in that, in that Minnesota game where they won overtime, even though Tatum did lead, in scoring with 45 points i would say brown's performance was really underlooked underrated underappreciated mm-hmm. um because he put up 35 points 
11 rebounds, grab two key steals, made a big block as well. And, um, you know, shot his splits were, were like 56 and 57 from the field and from three respectively. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I would have to wonder what his like first quarter efficiency is. He has to be like one of the very best first quarter players in this entire league. Like when the man is like, when the ball tips off at seven 30 or whatever time it is, Brown's just ready to roll. Um, mm-hmm. And earlier in the season too, he was also being criticized for not, you know, defending well, not being a playmaker, like not passing the ball when he should and trying to play too much ISO ball. But I would frankly say he silenced his critics less, you know, six weeks, two months. Yeah. You know, he's kind of been doing everything really well. And I, I think having both of the Jays playing, you know, at their peak is how they, is how they have to play win a championship. And I would say Porzingis kind of adds another element to both their offense, you know, having him be able to post up and, you know, he can also shoot, shoot pretty decently too. Um, he's also one of the very best pick and roll defenders in the league. Mm-hmm. So really, yeah, the defense. And too. it's also important to note how he holds uh, opponent field goal percentages around the rim to under fifty percent, when the league average is about fifty five percent from the rim. So he's a defensive stopper. He's a shot blocker when it comes to the paint. But honestly, like the reason I wanted to say that it should be quote unquote his team which is sort of a ludicrous take um, in all honesty, is because both the Jays were having a very rough patch shooting-wise up until recently. So Jason Tatum was shooting under 30% for like 10 games from like game 20 to 30. But now that we're 40 games in. Even that Detroit game where the Celtics had to come back from 20 and play in overtime, like, you know, Tatum did have 31 points, but took 31 shots 31 to get shots. that just insane 31 exactly. points on 31 shots that's insanely inefficient you know it was really poor Zingas that got them yeah, over the, the same amount of points with them. like half the shots so exactly that's kind of what propelled me to say that and then honestly like you can't really blame Jason Tatum because poor Zingas has a couple of years on him so poor Zingas has kind of been there where he's been really inefficient and he's learned from it Whereas Jason Tatum has only had a handful of seasons to experience that and get better from it. So you can't really like fault him for being their go-to guy in that situation. He'd rather take the shots and miss rather than shy away from the moment, which is very courageous of him and what he should be doing as the alpha of that team and the solidified 1A of that team. However, at the end of the day, I still think that his shooting woes will come back to bite him specifically when it comes to his shot selection in those clutch game situations. Because what propelled me to say that it should be Tingus's team when it shouldn't be, for those of you who, to make it clear, is that he's just a little bit smarter when it comes to clutch game situations when it comes to his shot selection. So obviously he's 7-1, right? So he's going to be, or 7-3. So he's going to have like a lot more advantages prevalent to him as opposed to a Jason Tatum or a Jalen Brown. And what annoys me a lot about Jason Tatum, for example, is that even at his 6-8, frame, he ends up settling for shots way too much, specifically when it's not his night because he's a shooter first mentality player. 
However, when it comes to Porzingis and Jalen Brown, for example, if their shot isn't going in, they're going to drive. They're going to get to their midi. Specifically, Jalen Brown's midi is unstoppable in clutch game situations because everyone thinks he's going to drive and then he stops on a dime and then he pulls up and it's usually money. He's shooting about 50% from the field and he's shorter than Jason Tatum. And Jason Tatum's only shooting 47% from the field. That's not to say that that's a bad number. That's just to kind of illustrate how his shot selection hasn't been the best in those clutch game situations. And if he's having a tough night, he's going to make the right pass, which he didn't used to make. So now he's averaging about five assists a game, which is a lot better than his previous performances in past seasons. But bring Perzingis into the mix and now even Jalen Brown is averaging a season era career high 3.5 assists per game compared to his like under three assists every single season because of his go-to mentality when it comes to him scoring. So that's all to say that Porzingis in clutch game situations, I think obviously because of his frame, his size, and his couple of years of more being mature over the Jays just has a lot better of a shot selection strategy to end you to end up winning you games in those uh, situations where you kind of just want to give it to someone clear the floor out you need a bucket those half court situations those playoff atmosphere types of plays I think that Porzingis is a little bit more higher likely given his physical strength to make the shot compared to Jason Tatum yeah so what do you think in clutch game situations do you think like, obviously, the probability of Jason Tatum scoring is higher. I just think the efficiency at which Porzingis scores in those late-game situations is marginally better than the Jays, specifically. Yeah, Tatum. well, I think the thing with the Celtics, and this is what they've kind of struggled with at times in the playoffs the past few years, is, you know, whether they're down or even up by a lot, Um They'll sometimes resort to ISO ball in late game situations. Um, the Jays are definitely amongst the bigger culprits, but what you really should be doing is you should be driving to the hoop. You know, you should be really gassing the other team out. Um, and again, that's why I really like the idea of getting Porzingis in the paint or maybe having him or Brown taking more mid range. Of course, you know, mid rangers are, you know, Brown's bread and butter. Um, I think the thing with Tatum is, you know, some it, it's kind of one of those things where sometimes you just have to try it long enough and eventually it'll work. You know, example 1A being the game six of the Eastern Conference semis last year where Tatum had shot like what, one for 14 from the field up until like five minutes left in the game. And they just like scored like 11 straight points and 16 points total in the fourth quarter. Um, I think the thing for, but the thing for Tatum too, is like, he's a decently sized guy. He's like six, eight or so, you know, he can drive to the hoop too, you know, get kind of those easy layups as well. Um, so I, I think Tatum just needs to be, as you kind of mentioned, a little bit smarter with his shot selection. Um, but I also think the Celtics are so deep this year that you can also win with other guys. You know, you mentioned Porzingis and, you know, let's not take away from uh, Drew Holiday's really settling into his role well at the point. You know, he's been a really good facilitator. He's been shooting much better lately, too. Um, and bald Derek White, my boy, excellent two-way player. 
Um, it's always been a great defender, but he's really his jump shots come a long way this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a little bit of a shooting slump recently, like in the last week and a half. But before then, like he was shooting some of the best numbers from the field and from three in his career. Um, so between those five, yeah, like I, I think that's why the Celtics have, are the number one rated team overall and top three in both offense and defense, um, you know, because they really can stop other teams. They they sometimes struggle with defending the three. That's maybe the one thing I will say, just kind of watching a lot of the Celtics games as, as a fan. Um, you, you know, I've seen this a bunch, like, you know, with the Pacers game and even with the Wolves game, which they won, you know, they were letting a lot of threes go. Mm-hmm. So that may be, that may be one thing that could be their downfall too. And it, it was their downfall in the conference finals last year. You know, Miami just couldn't miss from three. Caleb Martin and Gabe Vincent played like LeBron and Jordan. Yeah. Honestly, whenever you talk about the Lakers, I just get PTSD at this point. So. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, like the, the Celtics are in a really good spot space had mentally and uh the record's obviously the best in the league right now so can't take that away from them the question remains that in a playoff setting when the game is slowed down when defenses are very locked in when you're playing the same team over and over and they know your intuitions your tendencies your plays your go-to schemes at the end of late game situations the clutch game situations where it's five points within five minutes of the last quarter. That's the question about, are you guys going to default to your regular play styles where you give it to one of the J's or a KP in this case, you clear out the floor and you just make them go to work and odds are they're going to get plucked because they're a lot larger for the average NBA player. So a really good defender is just going to catch their dribble off guard. They're going to pluck them. They're going to lose the ball or they're going to miss the shot, or they're just not going to end up setting their defense wherever the play disintegrates or breaks down, and the other team's just going to get an easy two or an easy corner three on the other end of the floor because the Jays are too busy complaining to the refs as to why they didn't get that foul call that they were hunting for on that specific play. So if the Jays continue to do that and default to their past tendencies, I don't see you guys making it out of the East. And if you do, I don't see you winning the finals. But if they do learn to kind of um, update their systems and kind of take that Kawhi approach and try to be that go-to man, but um, when you're being doubled, just kind of like kick it out to the open person or even better so run a play with your best two guys together having for example Jason Tatum set an off ball screen so Jalen Brown could twirl get a dribble handoff and get an easy look or a wide open pass because you know teams are going to help when Jalen Brown drives so there's going to be a wide open person and what better person to kick it out to than one of the four best shooting uh, starters in the entire league you know like those are the plays you guys are going to have to default to when it comes to those late game situations, as opposed to clearing out one side of the floor and letting one of the Jays go to work because 
it's a double-edged sword because they are fully capable of doing that. And they're one of the most qualified duos in the league to be wanting to do that and to be uh, really good at doing it as well. But at the end of the day, they're human, just like everyone else. And they're prone to making errors, mistakes, and missing shots. So you're going to have to take the higher end of the situation, which brings you a better shot, a higher percentage shot, and run a play where that will be the default option at the end of it as compared to a simple ISO where that gets too predictable when you're playing the same team over and over again. No, I, I definitely agree. I, I will say, like, along with the fact that the Jays are young, like, you know, they, they definitely will, will learn lessons from the finals a couple of years ago, too. It's like they'll kind of figure out what worked, what didn't work. Um, I also got to hand it to the coaching staff, too. Like, I do think Joe Mazzula's doing a better job compared to last year. I don't think he did as bad of a job as some people thought he did, um, especially considering that he was thrust into the head coach role very last minute and under very awkward circumstances. Um, you know, along with the fact that his uh, coach, like his assistant coaches, a lot of them left during the year. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, like Damone Studemeyer left last year. Um, but then over during the off season, they brought in, you know, a bunch of guys to, to replace them. So like Sam Castle, who was on the uh, OA championship team. So really guys who have knowledge of the, the Celtics and know what works well, what, what it takes to win a championship. Um, I, I'm not quite as worried about the Celtics making it out of the East, just because I think they're that balanced of a team. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're like Milwaukee, for example, you know, as tonight showed, you're not, it, it's not possible to outscore a team seven times. You know, it, it just isn't. Um, so I think the Celtics may have enough separation to get done, but yeah, then the finals will be their real challenge because they might be going up against like the Nuggets or the Clippers or, the, or even like the Thunder, you know, who are really, really challenging teams, play well on both sides of the ball, you know, have a lot of talent. You know, Nuggets obviously won the championship last year, so it's very fresh for them. And the Clippers are just loaded with, you know, all-star caliber talent, including a two-time finals MVP in Kawhi. So, you know, the, it I, I, as a Celtics fan, obviously like their chances and will probably say I think Banner 18 is coming home. However, <laughs> I do understand what the foibles and bad tendencies of the Celtics are and, you know, definitely understand and share the, the concerns or potential concerns Sure. Uh, going forward uh, maybe I mean, one other team that's oh sorry no go ahead just wanted to talk about one other team that's been kind of on a heater lately one that probably won't get as much waves just because they were not really a team expected to do much of anything this year but how about the utah jazz won eight of their last 10 in the last 15 games have the fifth best offense and net rating as well as the 10th best defense. And they really are one of the youngest and most inexperienced teams uh, in the league. Again, they, they have, you know, some guy, some vets like, like a Laurie Markinen or Colin Sexton or uh, Jordan Clarkson, um, but not as many like all-stars or like even MVP caliber talent. Um, 
And it's not like they've just beat been beating the Pistons and Wizards. They've knocked off the Nuggets. They've knocked off the Bucks. They good teams. Like the only good team that they haven't beaten was the Celtics, which was a blowout. But that was like also the only game where they didn't really shoot well. Um, so I get, I guess, why well, I want to get your thoughts. Uh, what do you, what do you make of this little run the Jazz have? Could they maybe mess around and make the play in? Maybe be a I little mean, bit of a... like you said, they've been beating really good teams. They've beaten the Heat, the Mavs, uh, 76ers, Bucks, Nuggets, uh, Lakers, maybe even would have beat the Warriors tonight if the unthought, unthinkable news would have happened. Uh, thoughts and prayers go out to the assistant coach's family, obviously. May he rest in peace. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, Dayan Milojanovic. Yeah, he was 46. Um I, I almost wanted to do it at the start of the show before we got going, but yeah, I, I also want to extend my my thoughts and prayers to the Warriors team as well as his friends and family and, and may his memory be an eternal blessing. And of course, the Warriors and Jazz game scheduled for tonight was understandably and justifiably postponed. And, you know, I, I think it's right to give the guys their space to, you know, kind of start the grieving process and kind of collect themselves but yeah no as far as uh taking it back to pure basketball from that sense i think the utah jazz are semi or quasi legit because we did see them do the exact same thing last season to a little bit of a lesser extent they went on their run and then they came back down to earth now that's obvious to say um they're really playing well as a unit and that's what's making them unguardable they're averaging a lot more assists per game within those wins compared to when they were like, I think uh, the record right now is they're 22 and 20, I believe. So 22 and 20. And I believe they were 7 and 16 before this run. So they went yeah. ahead and won a multitude of games and only lost three in their last like 16, 17 games, which is ridiculous. So obviously a run like this, you're not going to be too ecstatic facing a red hot Utah Jazz team if you're a player or a team in the NBA. And um, but that's to say that they are solidified within the playing tournament. And unfortunately, I think that is the best it's going to get. Um, I think other teams around the league are also kind of mimicking some of their behavior. So like, uh, for example, a Miami or a Cleveland They've had their top dogs out and they've also been gelling really well as a unit. So that's not to say that superstars are not desirable or make your team worse. It's just sometimes when you're pushing the ball around so much, you catch the defense so off guard that they don't know who to guard anymore. They don't know who to place their best uh, defender on because... There is no quote-unquote best player. It's probably going to be Lowry Markkinen for one night. Then Jordan Clarkson's going to take over. Then Colin Sexton at 6-1 is going to take a lob from the 7-foot Kelly Olenek to ice mm-hmm. a game out of nowhere. So you don't really know what to expect, and it's really hard to prepare how to guard a team like that, especially if you're only playing them once in a regular season setting. So I think that has to do with a lot of why they've been winning um, recently. But unfortunately, I think it's um, not going to stay the way it is throughout the rest of the season. And if it does, 
they might snag like a sixth or a, not even fifth. They're probably going to snag like a sixth seed at best. I think they're going to stay within that playing range. And if they do make the playoffs, I think they're an easy first round exit to whoever team they play because they don't have that go-to scorer. Wet. Well, like that's nothing to take away from Lowry. He's an all-star. He's a really good player, but he's not going to be able to like get you a bucket in a half-court setting when the game slows down. He's a very good catch-and-shoot player. He's a very good shooter, and he's a very good uh, driver as well when he chooses to do that. However, um, I think when the defense keys in on him, very, very much so. Just like Pascal, for example, after the championship run, his numbers went down because he was the main culprit and main um like uh main player that's being chased down from the opposing side's defense. He was the main target. That's the word I was looking for. So I think you can kind of take this Utah Jazz run and kind of put it side by side with what Cleveland and Miami have been able to do with uh, a lot of their players out. So um, obviously Jimmy Butler was out for Miami and then uh, Cleveland were missing uh, Jared Allen, I think, up until recently. And then yeah. um, their point guard, which is one of my favorite players, has also been sidelined with a jaw injury that's extremely unlucky. But Darius yeah, Garland, guard. yeah, he's obviously like... Um, he's not having the best season right now. His efficiency is kind of tailed off, but I think if he had the luxury of playing more than 20 games, his stats would have definitely kind of came back to earth and what we're used to and why he was given that max contract and why Cleveland picked him over Colin Sexton, which is now thriving in Utah unequivocally and unironically. However, at the end of the day, to answer your question more directly, I think um, um a, uh, some other teams in the league have been enjoying a little bit less of what Utah has been doing and like I said those two teams but um, yeah they did it last season and um, when it comes from a pure roster standpoint I just don't see them continuing this further on specifically when teams kind of catch up to their style of play and how to stop it which is obviously a lot easier said than done but nonetheless it's nowhere near impossible and it's very doable specifically for a very uh advanced coaching staff such as the nba's no i completely agree and you know what you mentioned about the game slowing down a lot more in the playoffs is exactly why i do think a team like utah you know might be like i i wouldn't even go so far as to say like a 60 they'll be like a seven maybe a seven eight seed if they have a good play and run but ultimately you know they're a young team a very young and energetic team which you know can help you in the regular season because it's 82 games you know the game's more fast-paced um and you know and i also think that they're pretty well coached too like you know will hardy is a former celtics assistant uh oh yeah you know nice. so so they're being very well coached and they also have danny ainge in the front office now um mm -hmm. so you're very good at identifying young talent um but as you said i think between the talent disparity and the game slowing down i don't see utah making an actual playoff run um but of course you know even just a play and run would probably exceed any and all expectations that the jazz you know probably team and their fan base had for this year um as for cleveland and miami 
uh, Miami is always a bit of a deep team, but it's kind of the same thing with the two of them. You know, you kind of let the younger guys have some runs and see what you have. Um, you know, maybe test your depth a little bit, um, which again, Miami is always very good with. It's one of their strengths along with the coaching, you know, because Spolstra is, you know, easily a top three coach in the league. Easy. Um, you know, you can go on some regular season runs, even with, you know, Jimmy Butler out. Uh, I think Bam was out for a bit. Tyler Heroes missed a bunch of games. You know, so you're really letting your younger guys, your bench. Again, I mentioned the rookie Yaquez. He's been playing really well. Um, so, you know, I, I think... There's a lot of Lakers fans that are upset that we didn't take Jaime and we took uh, Hutchifino instead because we actually passed on Jaime and took uh, Hutchifino instead. And not really playing well for us. And look at how Jaime has an age well for, for the Heat. Yeah, yeah. I'm playing well. Hindsight is 2020. But it's interesting too, because young Cleveland's case, they they've jumped all the way up to the four seat in the East now, and they're only two games back from Philly. Just like Um, we predicted in the beginning of the season. We have them fourth. And I, I think, you know, for Cleveland that was huge because they'd been looking really average mediocre for the first like 25 30 games of the season you know they had for a while actually like a bottom five bottom six offense and they weren't even a top 10 defense but since then they've surged up to just checking so the last 15 games they've had the eighth best offense and the fourth best defense for the fourth best net, net rating so cleveland's been one of the hottest teams Lately, that kinda, again, as you that kind of like goes back to your question about Utah, right? Like, uh, there was a lot of Cleveland fans coming out and saying that, hey, like when Donovan Mitchell's out, we're moving the ball a lot more, we're winning a lot more games. But when he came back, he get they kind of fell off for a little bit and lost a couple of games there. But Mitchell, now that they Mitchell was kinda, shooting really poorly too. Yeah, yeah. But now that he kind of integrated himself back into the starting lineup after his injury, you saw them. You just said the stats yourself. They're kind of doing a lot better than they were, especially when he was out. And that's good enough to get them the fourth spot in the East. So kind of goes back to supplement what I said earlier that having your go-to guy, your like solidified superstar, your perennial all-star on your team it's not going to end up hurting you, even though you think it might because a lot more people will touch the ball and -and so-and-so. But at the end of the day, when it comes to winning in a playoff setting, you need that go-to scorer because even if he shoots 50%, you'd rather him make a shot and miss a shot rather than moving the ball around all the time to get it, end up getting it stolen or having someone take a shot that's not going to go in more than twice. No, I completely agree. And ultimately, again, when the game slows down, you need your stars to to come through. Um, yeah, in Cleveland's case, they, they've been missing a bunch of guys, not just Garland. I think Mo- Evan Mobley's also missed a bunch of time so far this year. Um, not that he had been playing at all the last year or so, but also last month, uh, Ricky Rubio officially retired. Yeah. You know, after missing the last like year and a half. Um, cause he was supposed to be a factor. Like I remember early last year, he was looking pretty good, like early last season, you know, then he, I believe tore his ACL or, mm-hmm. or like his Achilles or ruptured his Achilles and major injury. 
and then you know dealt with some mental health stuff before he officially retired sort of at the end of 2023 um and then for Miami it's kind of the same thing like you know you can have guys like Yaime and uh your bench help you out get you on a little bit of a streak in the regular season because ultimately again the regular season's 82 games you know I don't think any star Kenner should play all 82 um you know, even for my Celtics, we've been resting some guys on different nights. Mm-hmm. You know, we obviously know that that Jason Tatum does not have a left ankle injury or a left wrist injury. Um, yeah. <laughs> but all, all this to say that the, the season's long, which, you know, given that we're already about halfway through, is very crazy to think about, but it is a long season. Yeah, um, for sure. And as you, as you see certain teams, you know, get hot, hot you know, Another team that we won't touch on quite as much, but could be interesting over the coming weeks is the Pelicans. They've been one of the hotter teams too. Also a fairly balanced team. Um, but yeah, this is, it's been an interesting season so far. For sure, for sure. And just to touch off that Pelicans point, um, I kind of want to mention a lot um, some other teams that we won't really get into, but are worth mentioning. So obviously, I don't think the Knicks are done making moves after that OG trade because they have a lot of first round picks that are up on the market to be dealt to kind of either get them that like third star or quote unquote missing piece that they need to contend or just surround their roster with a lot more better wings and three and D guys and everything like that. Personally, I think they should uh, adopt to do the latter, which is what the Lakers should also be doing. Um, we we'll, won't get into too many trade uh, talks this episode. That's mostly next episode. But just uh, on a surface level, I don't think the Lakers should go out and get a Zach Levine. I don't think they should get a DeJounte Murray. I think they need more of, uh, for example, Nicholas Batum type player. You know, like that guy who's going to give it his all on defense and then knock it down from three when you need him to. And I think that's what the Knicks did with OG, but I certainly don't think they're done making moves. A lot of reports have came out to say that, um, what's their star's name again? Not Brunson. Um, Randall? Julius yeah, Randall. Julius Randall's on the t- uh, trading block. So I expect him to be moved before the trade deadline as well. And um, it's also worth mentioning that Jaws' return uh, was very short and sweet. Um, he came back in his first game and uh, had a game winner just like that. And then um, you figure that the Memphis Grizzlies were slowly figuring it out, going five and five in a subset of games they had over there with job back in the lineup. But then they kind of tailed back down to earth. A lot of people were saying, oh, they should be a playing team, no doubt, going forward. But now that jaw is out for the rest of the season with a hand injury or shoulder injury, and they also are missing uh, cornerstones uh, for their franchise, like Steven Adams, for example. And um, there's another big that they're missing. I think his name is Brandon something. Um, they, they're just not a, a healthy roster. They're just not no, where they're, they're supposed to be. They're extremely banged up. I, I yeah, you have like, like players last like... Game, two games. Desmond Bain was out. Jaron Jackson exactly. Jr., the reigning defensive player of the year, was out. I just don't Marcus, think it's their Marcus year. Smart, so. Marcus Smart, who's actually been playing quite well uh, when he's on the court for the Grizzlies. Uh, that was a wrist injury, so he's out. 
or hand injury and he's out till after the all-star break um so the grizzlies are just really depleted and this is a team that's already really struggling on the offensive side of the ball i think the only offense that struggles to score more than them is portland and portland you know it's like a bottom five team yeah i mean i mean they're they're in such a rough spot that DeAndre Ayton couldn't make it to the game today because he was stuck yeah, in a giant sheet of ice. <laughs> I saw that. That was hilarious. Uh, per- a perfect metaphor for the Blazers season. For real. For real. <laughs> um, yeah, and then like the Mavs, for example, I think Luka's having an MVP caliber season. He's shooting the ball better than he ever has before. And now he has Kyrie, which he's actually gelled with. They know each other's tendencies a lot better, so they're not going to end up passing a game, potentially game-winning shot to have a no shot because they keep passing the ball to each other. They've been doing a lot better. Their defense went from 25th in the NBA last season to 18th, so not where they want it to be. But their offense is very good, obviously, with that dynamic duo. It's good for uh 117 points per 100 possessions that's good for the number eight spot in the entire league i also think they're a few pieces away from being a legit contender they just need a lot more defense to go along with their lineup that's not to say that they don't have those pieces already for example Derek jones jr is an excellent defender He's playing the power forward position for them at 6'6", because he has a 7-foot wingspan, which is just absolutely insane. And then, obviously, you have Grant. I'm going to make them both Williams. He's uh, one of my favorite players uh, in the league. However, he's uh, considerably cooled off from his hot shooting start he had from the beginning of the season. saw a stat recently that said he shot about 45% for the first couple months tilled back down to about 37 and now he's around 25 percent for the month of january so that hopefully is, he comes a, back to his norms because experience for you i don't really want him to make them both no more i want him to just make his threes at this point so uh i think uh the mavs need a few more moves just like the knicks do and then those teams will solidly become in contention for both conferences because I think they're both, um, no, they're the Mavs are in fifth place, but after losing right now, they're actually in sixth. So, uh, yeah, they're sixth and seventh in the West and East, respectively. So um, I think they're both uh, one big piece or uh, a lot of, uh, like, several small pieces, which is the preferred route uh, away from, like, legitimate title contention for this season. Yeah, I think the Mavs and Knicks, they also have a similar problem insofar as, like, I think they're also trying to find guys who can or who elevate their performance come playoff time besides, like, their one or two stars. Like, for the Knicks, for example, you know what you're going to get out of Brunson. He's very good on both ends of the floor. You know, he can score a lot. He can facilitate. He can play pretty solid defense. Um and he's very reliable come playoff time. Uh, the thing for the Knicks has always been kind of what the rest of the crew does. Because um, guys like Randall usually tend to fall off quite a bit come playoff time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Knicks have so far made some pretty good moves getting guys like OG Ananobi. Who, Great move. Um, yeah. Part of that championship Raptors team. Yeah, really elevates. He was injured, but he still has a ring, so it counts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, he has a crazy game winner to his name in the playoffs too. And I as a Celtics fan know that very yeah, well. You know that pretty <laughs> well. Yeah. Yeah. Um and for the Mavericks, it's the same thing. Like they have Luca and they have Kyrie. You know what you're gonna get out of both of them. They're all stars. Kyrie ha- obviously has a ring to his name too, um, which he played a huge role in, other than LeBron. You know, you would probably say Kyrie maybe even as like one A and one B to LeBron mm-hmm. in terms of like their their role in that championship ring. For sure. Um, yeah, they had that it, both uh, 41 game performance, which was exactly. iconic at the time. Still and is. then obviously, obviously in that game seven back in 2016, you know, made that clutch three. I think yeah. either right before or right after LeBron made, made the block on Iguodala. That's why I think Kyrie is better than Harden, and that's a really hot take because in totality, Harden's a better player for sure. But I just think Kyrie is nicer. In terms of play, in terms of clutch playoff performance, it's 100 percent Kyrie. Exactly. I I think overall it might be a hot take in terms of who's a better playoff performer, more clutch. Absolutely not a hot take. Um, But then for the Mavs, exactly. And then for but for the Mavs, it's kind of a similar question. It's like who's going to kind of step up if let's say Luca Kyrie are hurt, or maybe if they're having a rough shooting night where nothing's going down, which has happened sometimes. Um, you know, what can you get out of like a Tim Hardaway Jr.? You know, can you get good defense out of Derek Jones Jr.? Can you get him, you know, making some crazy like alley dunks a la the dunk contest from 2020? Or 2019 might have been. Um, Gordon got snubbed. <laughs> oh, he he 100. percent D Wade was the reason Derek Jones won because he played for Miami uh, at the time. Crazy how he would snub a fellow Heat like that. But <laughs> anyways, we're we're beating a dead horse here, even yeah, though I 100 percent agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's kind of the same thing. Like they're both teams that are. I mean. Of course, I, it's kind of laughable to say they're both teams that are in tough conferences because they're only sure. conferences, but conferences that are very crowded and competitive. Um, so I, I think they are kind of that team that needs like one or two more guys who will really elevate them come playoff time. And maybe I, I think the Knicks are a little bit more balanced than the Mavs, but for the Mavs, maybe someone who elevates their defense you know, maybe to top half in the league and mm-hmm. you know, can also contribute on the offensive side of the ball, you know, really to support Luca or, you know, again, maybe if Luca's not having good shooting night, give him a person to pass to that they can, you know, just catch and shoot or, you know, make a play happen. Yeah. Um. So those are two kind of wa- in very interesting wildcard teams. So they'll definitely of both course, be in the playoffs, you know, barring, barring a, a collapse like last year in the case of the Mavericks, but you know, also Kyrie was injured in that case. Um but yeah. I, I think I think both teams could be very interesting come playoff time though. And again, yeah. I think they just need to make a couple more right moves via trade to make that happen. Yeah. Speaking of which, be sure to tune in to our next episode where we're gonna be discussing a lot more trade scenarios and the all-star return ballots. And I kind of just want to end off this episode by discussing the Kawhi extension that he recently got. So about 50 million in average salary for three years. 
obviously that's not the max he could have gotten but at the same time they wanted to keep some cap space to discuss bringing PG and Harden back because they're both playing on contract years, which absolutely has nothing with the way they're playing right now, does it? Uh, you find players mm. with contract years just playing outside of their minds to secure food and money for their families for three to four years in the future. So that's a really good uh, move on the Clippers part. Even through all the load management and everything like that, we're seeing the full potential of this Clippers team being unleashed this season. And we'll see how far they end up going. And I'm actually curious to see if they're going to sign PG or Harden first. After Kawhi, I think it's going to be PG because Kawhi personally requested him. He's been playing absolutely ridiculous. He had 38 the other night, which is just insane. And it's like mostly just pull up threes which is not, should not be the case if you're 6'8". You shouldn't be as smooth as PG. Like, I'll go as far as to say is I think Paul George is a more polished and better version of Jason Tatum, even at Jason Tatum's age. Uh, give me a 25-year-old PG over JT any day of the week. Um, I think Paul George's shot selection is better. I think he um, kind of picks when he's going to pull up for a three as opposed to exclusively pulling up from three. But that's neither here or there. No, I mean, I, I will say that last part is definitely a hot take. But it to is, kind of yeah. address the uh, kind of to address the meat of your of your last point, I would definitely take PG over Harden first, along with the fact that Kawhi requested him. You know, he's kind of been the core of these Clippers teams. Um, obviously, leaving the bubble collapse aside, he's been very solid. He played really well in the playoffs the following year again when they made the Western Conference Finals for the first time in team history. And Kawhi was out um, too. Yeah, Kawhi was out and it was really Paul George that was keeping them in that series. And who knows? I don't I mean that series almost went to a game seven if eight DeAndre Ayton had made that tip in in like game five. Yeah. You know, that very well could have been a seven game series and who knows what happens at that point, especially considering that Phoenix is no better in game sevens and the Clippers, I would argue. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I think the Clippers should, you know, give Paul George the money he wants. And, yeah, I think Kawhi and PG, hopefully, you know, they get hardened as well. Cause I think he's also a very important piece, you know, whether it's, you know, scoring or facilitating, because mm-hmm. um, he really can do either. Um, but ultimately, I think the two guys you want to center that team around are Kawhi and sure. PG. I think that gives you the best chance at, you know, not only your first finals trip ever as a franchise, but maybe even your first ring. Capturing it. Yeah. Uh kind of want to end off this episode by discussing the Raptors and Lakers free throw disparity from a Raptors Lakers fan. And uh Darko, our coach, uh the Raptors coach, going absolutely ballistic on the media. He got fined 25k for it. However, he nonetheless made the statement that he wanted to make which was that the Lakers got 24 free throws to the Raptors, two in the entire fourth quarter, and went as far as to negate a Scotty Barnes made three because of a screen that R.J. Barrett set on Anthony Davis. And Anthony Davis, which was obviously a flop, and I'm a Lakers fan, he flopped, and instead of getting a flopping foul, he got a regular foul on the like a defensive foul on R.J. Barrett or an offensive foul on R.J. Barrett, which negated the play and essentially made the Raptors 
behind from three points. And then the Lakers went ahead to get the ball, get fouled, make two more free throws. And on top of all that, the Raptors only lost by one. And they had like 22 less free throws in the entire quarter. So he made his voice heard. What's your voice on that? I mean, look, ultimately, as a team, you got to win no matter what the whistle is, whether you're the Celtics against the Pacers a few weeks ago, the Lakers against the Celtics last year. Um, but 24-2 free throw disparity in one quarter is just insane. Ridiculous. Um, yeah. And I, I'm sure the Raptors coach was more than happy to take that $25,000 <laughs> fine to make his voice heard. Um, yeah, it's just like, that's the thing with the refs. Like, bad calls will happen or mistakes will happen. They're human. I think what gets people pissed off is, like, disparities like that or, like, when they're very inconsistent with their calls. Like, you know, the... You, if you don't, I would highly encourage you read those last two minutes or L2M reports that the league puts out every day, every following day at usually 4 p.m. Um, they're very interesting. They point out correct calls, correct no calls, as well as incorrect calls and incorrect no calls. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely a lot of incorrect calls and no calls. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read the report for this game, but it must be, must yeah. be juicy, like a medium rare steak. Oh my god, that's a perfect way to end off this episode. We'll catch you guys on the next episode.